Okay, so here we are. It's this last Sunday in the first month of 2024. Time just kind of rips by, doesn't it? So good to see you all, of course, and welcome to all those of you joining us online. So today we wrap up this third and final relationship that Paul is showing us about, and that's the relationships that unfold in the workplace. But before we get into this, of course, I have the privilege one last time of laying out this overarching motivation that Paul has for us. And the reason why I say it's a privilege is because this is just absolutely something that we all must grasp. Whenever we're born again into a new life in Christ, the question always is, what's next for me? Well, Paul tells us, imitate God by walking in love. And that's daunting when you think about it. It's not something we can do on our own, which is why Paul says, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that filling of the Holy Spirit also isn't something that just happens to us. It isn't though the day we become a Christian that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We certainly receive the Holy Spirit, but our lives aren't marked by Spirit-filled living yet, which is why Paul says we must be filled. And anytime we think about what it is that we can do with regard to engaging with the Holy Spirit in our lives, it basically boils down to three things. The first is we can be filled with Him. The second is that we can grieve Him. And when we grieve him, we do that by living in unrepentant sin. The other thing we can do is we can quench the Holy Spirit. That's when we reject his counsel. We ignore him. And whenever we do those last two things, there's this distance of sorts that happens with us. We don't grow in holiness. We don't progress down that path to holiness. The fruit of the Spirit just doesn't ripen in our lives. And that's why Paul tells us we simply must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he gives us three ways in which we can be filled. The first of those is praising. And some of us say, well, that's easy. I come to church every Sunday. We sing some songs. That's praising. I check that off. No, no, that's not it at all. In fact, sometimes I think we sing on Sundays, but I'm not sure we're actually praising. When we think about what is involved in adoring and praising God, man, it's part of our entire lives. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're mowing the grass. You can be praising God through that. Same thing goes with thanking God. I mean, we can say we get up and we thank him for the nice day and whatever else, but are we truly living out of the spirit of gratitude, right? That's part of spirit-filled living. And of course, this last one, where we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's a real challenge because that's all about relationships and relationships are just really hard. And that's why Paul goes into such great detail to help us understand those relationships you see up there. Those relationships call us into a greater walk with the Lord when we respond the way in which Paul is teaching us here. That's why it's so important that we do it. And then, of course, today, we're going to wrap up this last group where we look at relationships in the workplace. And Paul uses this language, bond servants and masters. Okay, so as we noted last week, work comprises a non-trivial share of our lives. And it seems to cut both ways. It can be this tremendous source of fulfillment in our lives, or it can absolutely drain every ounce of strength from us by virtue of these relationships that we're involved with. Because if you think about the highs and lows in work, they're so often connected to the many relationships that we have with our coworkers, with our boss, with our subordinates, with the clients, which is no doubt why Paul gives us instruction as to how it is that we're to approach these work relationships. And as we learned last week, his use of this word bondservant is especially noteworthy because it covers this broad range of servant-to-master relationships, 
For example, it can refer to slaves. In the traditional sense of the word, those forced to work under horrific conditions. But it can also refer to people who are in debt to others, and so they must involuntarily serve them until that debt is paid off. Or it can refer to those who voluntarily work for another person, usually for compensation or other benefits. And that's what most of us do in this day and age. So Paul's use of this term bondservant covers this wide range of varying degrees of freedom with respect to work. And regardless of where each of us sits along this freedom continuum, Paul taught that we're to serve our earthly masters just as though we're serving the Lord. Where it's our greatest desire to please them by working hard, giving it all that we've got, despite how we're being treated by them. And that is perhaps the hardest part of this teaching because Paul never gives us an out whenever our bosses are being difficult with us. He never says, stand up for yourself or go ahead and initiate a lawsuit to make sure that your voice is heard. No, he just says, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. And what's even more striking, at least to me, is that Paul doesn't even address the institution of slavery as being wrong. In fact, there's no mention of social justice or advocating for human rights movements anywhere in here. But it would be wrong to interpret Paul's silence on the matter as though he's endorsing these human rights violations because it's pretty clear that his focus is actually on the underlying cause of these horrific social injustices such as slavery. So perhaps we should take our lead from Paul on this point, especially during this political season. We should be focused more on the cause, not necessarily the symptoms. Now, when we think about that, I know for me personally it's been a challenge because ever since I became a pastor, I've been kind of taken back by the number of people who want me to stand up here and talk about politics. And you're never going to see me do that. And that's because Paul doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. We don't find that anywhere in Scripture at all. In fact, when you think about it, what's the best way to possibly address all of these issues we see all around us in society? It's not by taking some public stand on these matters. It's not by getting into these whipped up conversations and shouting at each other. It's by preaching the truth of the person, words, and works of Christ, getting after the cause. And that's presumably why Paul doesn't address any of this stuff either. No, he has a bigger point that he wants to make to those who've been born again into a new life in Christ. And it essentially boils down to this. We've seen it multiple times throughout the last two years as we've studied this letter. It's that we need to get over ourselves. We need to be focused on who we are now, that we have our identity in Christ. We're a child of God, and that's what matters. And honestly, if you really want to start addressing all the world's issues out there, how about you just go and do your part? Give it your all in your marriage. Give it your all in your family. If you're a child, man, be the best child you can be for your parents. If you're a parent, take care of those kids, right? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction in the Lord. And in the workplace, be excellent in all that you do. If we all just did that, think how much of this world would actually change. And as we learned last week, that means basically two things in the workplace. No shirking. When the boss isn't around, we can't be napping, we can't be engaging in social media, knocking down all our Amazon purchases at work. 
That's what he's talking about right there. We don't do that stuff. Second, buttering up the boss, polishing his apple, always reminding him of how handsome and powerful he is all the time. No, we're to work as to the Lord. And you just happen to shovel dirt to pay the bills. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, if you work in IT, if you're an accountant, if you're a business owner, whatever it is, all that basically boils down to shoveling dirt anyway. But it's in the shoveling of the dirt in our everyday ordinary lives that we get to minister. And that's what Paul is pointing us to. And that happens by how it is that we work, the attitude we bring, the atmosphere we bring at work. That's the message Paul has for bond servants, for all workers. Want to start changing society's issues, especially in the workplace? Just start working this way and watch what happens. As you start rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Because he is our focus now. And that is where we left off last week. And then Paul writes, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So once again now, we come across this issue in Scripture of rewards from God. And this is something we have to be ever so careful with because it has led to so many false teachings out there. So we got to really turn this thing around thoroughly to make sure that we appreciate all the angles. Now, as I mentioned, this issue of rewards from God is found throughout the entirety of Scripture, and it essentially boils down to these two things. When we obey God, we please Him, and there is a blessing. We're drawn close to Him. That's what we're talking about when we use this phrase, being filled with the Spirit. But when we disobey God, whenever we sin, we anger Him, and there is a curse, or we are separated from Him, and that's the distance we're referring to when we talk about grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit of God. And we can actually see this truth play out all over Scripture. If you go back to the very beginning, in the garden, there was a blessing with Adam and Eve being in communion with God until they sinned, and then there was a curse. Of course, we see this also with Noah. The curse of sin was to wipe it out completely. We see it front and center. It's one of the main principles in this conditional covenant that God made with Moses. That's what the law is all about. We follow the law. We please God. We don't follow the law. We anger God. Two years ago, when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of these exact same rewards in his very first recorded sermon. And now Paul is going on about them too. So rewards are clearly a part of Scripture, and we really need to understand them. Now, where we tend to miss it up is that we interpret these rewards from a worldly perspective. That's where the false teaching of the prosperity gospel comes into play, leading so many people astray. It's this idea that God exists out there for me. He exists to make sure I've got sunny skies, I've got wealth, I've got great health, nothing but happy days in my life. And that is not biblical, and that's not at all what Paul is teaching us here. So let's turn this around a bit and make sure that we understand what he means by these rewards. Now first, whenever you think about this word reward, it's basically something that's given to someone who has been set apart from the crowd. They kind of stand out from the rest of people. It's really important to think about that particular definition as we work through this. But we can't look at these rewards as though there's some kind of trophy 
that there's going to be this huge award ceremony whenever we get to heaven to celebrate all of our great accomplishments while we're here on earth. And I imagine everyone in here, at least at some point in their life, has probably received a trophy. And I know these days, pretty much everybody gets a trophy. But when you look at those trophies, they actually aren't worth that much. They're typically just a shiny little piece of plastic. And even the worldly status that people try to derive from that little piece of plastic tends to be more of a curse than a blessing. So this clearly cannot be what Paul has in mind. It's not about some shiny piece of plastic. So what does he have in mind? Well, if you think about it, the reward is actually in the work. In all the work that goes into earning that trophy, the discipline, the training, the sacrifice, those precious relationships that were built all along the way. And how do you know that to be true? Because when you go to an award ceremony and the person receives the trophy, what do they typically mention? All those things, all the hard work, all the relationships. That's what they talk about because that's actually where the reward lies. Second, we often tend to think of it like an ice cream cone as the reward for good behavior. Whenever we disobey our parents, we anger them. And both sides of that relationship, they feel pretty awful about it. There's usually a distance of sorts that we experience. And of course, no ice cream tonight. But the true punishment isn't about the ice cream that we missed out on. No, it's about the anger and the frustration that our disobedience caused. It's all those awful feelings, all that distance. Because if we had instead obeyed our parents, they would have been pleased with us, which would have in turn been an encouragement to both sides, drawing us nearer to them. And yeah, to top it all off, we get a scoop of ice cream tonight. But the true reward is not in that scoop. It's in the pleasing of our parents, the encouragement that we experience, being drawn near to them as we share some ice cream together. Are you beginning to see now what Paul has in mind here? A third and slightly different way to think about it is akin to assembling a piece of Ikea furniture. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? I can tell by the chuckles. Whenever your spouse drags one of those Ikea boxes through the door, it's a challenging day, isn't it? If you follow those directions to a T, you will be rewarded. You're going to be able to assemble that thing very smoothly. It's actually quite ingenious and rewarding to see how slick some of that stuff goes together. But if you don't follow those instructions to a T, you will lose your mind. Absolutely. That IKEA stuff will humble you. It defies all logic. You will not be rewarded for your efforts. And that's because you didn't do things the way those twisted people at IKEA designed them to be done. Now, each of these three illustrations together help us begin to see what Paul means here by these rewards. They're not about trophies and worldly status. They're not about earthly pleasures like ice cream. They're about doing things the way God designed them to be done. And those rewards actually come in the work that we do, the discipline, the training, the sacrifice. They're about all those relationships that are built every day in the workplace. They're about the encouragement that comes with pleasing God and being drawn near to him because we did things the way God designed them to be done, which is how we bring him glory. And here we are again, back at this truth we've seen over and over throughout all of Paul's instruction here. 
that when we live according to God's design, it puts us in step with his will, and he fills us with his spirit. You see, spirit-filled living is the ultimate reward as it helps us grow in our relationship with the Lord. And in his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul describes the fruit that we can expect to bear whenever we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is there any greater reward out there than that? Living a life marked by those nine attributes. Just look at those once again. Can you imagine if that is what represented your life in every aspect of it? No trophy, no extra scoop of ice cream, no slick IKEA furniture assembly could ever compare to that. And let's make sure that we also don't miss the fact that this teaching applies to anyone. Paul uses that word very specifically. Whether he is a bondservant, a slave, an involuntary or voluntary servant, or happens to be free. So these rewards apply to servants and masters alike, which is where Paul turns his attention next. As he writes, masters, do the same to them. And this is a really profound part of his teaching. So by now I hope we're all seeing this pattern emerge. Just as we saw with wives and husbands, and we saw it again with children and parents, Paul starts by exhorting the subordinate to voluntarily submit to or obey the head. And then he turns to the heads and directs them to behave with the same spirit as the subordinate. In fact, ratchet it up a little bit sometimes. Wives, you submit to your husbands, and then husbands, you love your wives. Children, obey your fathers, and fathers, don't provoke your children to anger in any way, shape, or form. And now bond servants, obey your masters, and then masters, do the same to them. In other words, treat your bond servants as they treat you. Have the exact same attitude as they do. They're to obey you because they're to have their eyes fixed on Jesus. They're actually just serving you because they're ultimately serving God as they serve you. So you do the exact same thing. Masters, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because if you've been born again, you're actually serving him as you lead, direct, and care for your workers. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever imagined as though you're leading your workers and one of them happens to be Jesus? And this phrase, do the same to them also, takes us right back to where Paul started, which is again why this is such a profound remark. He takes us back to those very three examples that Paul gives us for how to live a spirit-filled life by praising, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the bond servants, they submit to their masters, and now the master is to do the same to them. In other words, the masters also submit to the bondservants. You see, regardless of our earthly status or rank, we submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. And that's what makes this such a radical teaching, because you'll never find this anywhere in the world. So it's what makes believers stand out. Remember, rewards 
are for those who stand out among the crowd. And that's why if you want to make change in this world, if you want to stand out, do this. Behave this way and just watch what happens. And then just as Paul gave the bond servants a few examples of what not to do, he gives the earthly masters an example of what not to do. And stop your threatening. Good work, the excellent kind, rarely comes about by threatening people. Threats just create unhelpful tension and bitterness. If you think about it, we don't do our best work whenever someone is shouting at us. We don't give it our all whenever we're being threatened to work against our will. Do you see how Paul carefully builds this argument from both sides? It's on the worker to remove any type of tension and bitterness from their relationship with their boss by simply obeying them, by working as to the Lord because they have a healthy fear of the Lord. And it's on the boss to remove all tension and bitterness from the relationship with the worker, not by threatening, but by serving their workers as to the Lord because they too have a healthy fear of the Lord. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. You see, even the greatest of earthly masters is still a servant of God. Scripture is clear. One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we're born again into a new life in Christ, we die to the old self. So the world is no longer our master. We don't owe him nothing. We serve our master now, and his name is Jesus. So if we are a worker, we serve our earthly masters as though they were our heavenly king. And if we happen to be a boss, we treat our workers in exactly the same way as though they were Jesus. And that's because, as Paul concludes here, there is no partiality with him. So yes, in the world, there will always be partiality. There's always this hierarchy of sorts. We all report to someone else. And the world will always favor those who reside at the top of that pyramid. But when we're born again into a new life in Christ, we're now heirs to the kingdom of God, where there is no partiality. You see, God esteems the lowest slaves on the same footing as the captains of industry. The ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. There's no rank in heaven where we'll spend eternity with all of God's beloved children. So when we think about it in that light, why would we ever want to sow seeds of bitterness and tension with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, the way in which we approach work, whether as the boss or as a subordinate, must be that work is there to provide this rich opportunity for us to minister to others in our everyday ordinary life, to stand out because we do things the way God designed them to be done. As we submit to one another, out of reverence for the master of all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for your infinite wisdom, for how you designed us individually, especially to be in a relationship. Lord, we thank you for Paul, for using him so mightily to teach us about how it is that we're to live a spirit-filled life in our marriages, in our families, and even in the workplace. Lord, you are our master, and we desire to serve you with all we've got. Strengthen us when we confront difficult work environments. 
May we be a light that shines in the darkness. Remind us, whenever we are placed in positions of authority, that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as you have loved us. And it's for your son's sake that we pray. Amen. 